Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair. Ideas tonight is about the politics of broadcasting. Parliament, and in particular the, the reigning party, whatever that party may be, has never really understood the importance of a public broadcasting system in this country. They delude themselves into the idea that you can sort of have a skim milk operation. I would say the, the greatest element destroying the ideal of the, or the idea of Canadian broadcasting as expressed in the aired report was really the power of Canadian wealth. I can't prove it, but I would suggest that there are more millionaires made out of radio broadcasting than were made out of, of building the CPR. When Prime Minister R.B. Bennett introduced the bill which created Canada's first public broadcasting agency in 1932, the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, he told the House of Commons that he wanted to be assured of complete Canadian control of broadcasting, free from foreign interference or influence. Twenty years later, when television was introduced, the Liberal Minister of Transport, Lionel Chevrier, praised Bennett's foresight and reaffirmed the idea that only a public agency could be relied on to produce Canadian programs. Today, about 75% of what Canadians watch on television comes from the United States, and public broadcasting is only a small part of the whole system. This program asks, what happened? It's written and presented by David Cayley. The Broadcasting Act of 1936 was the fruit of dreams, the dreams of Alan Plant and Graham Spry and the young men and women of the Radio League. They had formed the League six years before to advance the proposals of the Aired Commission for the nationalization of radio. And thanks to the tireless efforts of Alan Plant, they had finally convinced the new Liberal government of Mackenzie King to proceed with something quite like the Aired Commission's original design. The new CBC would be responsible for all regional and national broadcasting. Private radio would be purely local in scope and would be regulated by the CBC. That was the theory. But looking back, years later, Graham Spry reflected that it had never been the practice. The CBC has never been created as provided by law and its powers have been progressively or regressively reduced or in some way impeded, their use impeded. The concept of a, a single national broadcasting system with an uh, almost unlimitable number of low-power local stations in all sorts of fo ownership forms, cooperative, municipal, private, advertising, what you will, this, of course, never came into being. And from the very first, under the CRBC, but later, more particularly, under the CBC, you had the vast expansion of private radio stations. From the beginning, there had been two visions of how radio should be developed in Canada, one based on public ownership, the other on private. But radio station owners in the early 30s lacked political influence. Many newspapers still saw commercial radio as a potentially threatening competitor for both advertising and circulation. And men like R.B. Bennett and Mackenzie King were still susceptible to the Radio League's argument that radio must be developed in the public interest. Not that the CBC had ever had unqualified political support. 
the CBC's predecessor, the CRBC, was less than a year old when hostile members of R.B. Bennett's government tried to deprive the fledgling commission of half the monies appropriated for it. Bennett, who was in England at the time, finally scotched the revolt, but it indicated just how badly the Conservative Party was split on the issue of public broadcasting, virtually from day one. It was also true from the beginning that many private station owners were restive with the supervisory role of the CRBC, and after 36, the CBC. So it was natural enough that an alliance would form between the Free Enterprise Faction and the Conservative Party and the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, the private broadcasters' lobby. Frank Piers is a former supervisor of talks and public affairs at the CBC and the author of The Politics of Canadian Broadcasting. Well, the Broadcasting Act of 1936 was passed with the support of all, not only all parties, but all parliamentarians. I think there, if I doubt that there was a single vote cast against it, there may have been one. And during the war, on the whole, the CBC retained the support of people from the different parties, but it began to crumble before the war ended. It began to crumble particularly when the Conservatives asked for live coverage of the leadership convention which selected John Bracken as leader. Now, the wartime restrictions were such that the CBC could not put on the air any unscripted programs. Everything had to be scripted. So um, the CBC unwisely refused this live coverage of the uh, Conservative Leadership Convention. And um, gradually, a wing of the Conservative Party began to be... um, to ally themselves more and more with a group of private broadcasters who wanted to run their own show without reference to the CBC, which was also the regulatory authority at that time. And as time went on, particularly the Toronto members of the Tory party tended to speak out for the Toronto private broadcasting interests. The political influence of private broadcasting increased with its profitability. Between 1938 and 1940, for example, commercial revenues for all stations nearly doubled. And as broadcasting became more profitable, station owners became more eager to escape the restrictions placed on them by the CBC. For example, the restriction on their maximum power. They succeeded in 1948, when the CBC Board of Governors allowed station CFRB in Toronto to increase its power to 50,000 watts. This changed the broadcasting system at a stroke. Once CFRB had maximum power, other stations were soon granted it, and the distinction between the CBC as a regional service and the private stations as local services was largely lost. The decision to increase CFRB's power came on the heels of an aggressive campaign against the CBC by the leading private stations and their supporters. Their aim was to get free of the regulatory authority of the CBC. The CBC, they argued, could not fairly be both cop and competitor. Davidson Dunton, as chairman of the CBC board, staved off the attack. They wanted to get rid of the tutelage of the CBC, the old cause that they're a competitor is regulating a competitor, and so on. And they fought that. They, uh, I think it was 47 particular huge publicity campaigns, advertisements in newspapers, stuff on the air, and so on, the horrors of this system. We fought to keep the powers of the CBC 
because it was the only way we could see in which you would have a, a coherent, unified system of one body responsible for the, if you like, the positive and negative sides of, of broadcasting, of, of trying to check people from doing completely stupid things, but even, to my mind, much more important, of building up really good Canadian programming and Canadian coverage. During the campaign of 1947, some of the private broadcasters and their allies worked themselves up to a feverish rhetorical pitch. They portrayed the CBC as a brutal, bureaucratic juggernaut and a threat to free speech. This reflected the views of the wealthy independent stations which dominated the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, but it obscured the high degree of cooperation that actually existed between the CBC and many smaller stations. A great many private stations uh, were affiliates of the CBC in radio, on the Transcend or the Dominion Network. There were very few that weren't in effect. And so, in lots of ways, they were partners in the same job. We wanted them to do a good job, and they wanted the CBC to do a good job. And I remember the meetings of the, with the affiliates used to be extremely interesting, you know. <laughs> interesting? <laughs> yes. But, uh, and here, they, they, sometimes. They have the, in general... You know, wanting more popular programs, want to have less, uh, what they would call dull programs in reserve time. In other words, ones we would regard as more substantial kinds of problems, that sort of thing. But in a rather good-humoured way, because they knew the uh, CBC network was extremely important to them, and it was important to CBC because it couldn't get the... Uh, the uh, funds didn't have the possibility of putting a station for every area in the country in you know. Right, given the nature of Canada and the compromises necessary, it was really quite remarkable, I think. I don't think any other country in the world has achieved as good combination of sponsored and non-sponsored programs, commercial and non-commercial programming, and of cooperation of privately owned stations and uh, publicly owned stations. And I think just taking that period of radio, Canada had a, for its size, for its complexity, for its two languages, had a darn good radio system compared with anything in the world. This mixed public and private system, while it lasted, was a unique Canadian hybrid. It worked, typically, by compromise, and the CBC did a lot of the compromising. In fact, the Massey Commission in 1951 reproved the CBC for the leniency of its regulation. But the CBC did always insist on its control of networks, its right to require stations to carry its programs, and on its primacy within the system. Particularly from 48 on, we were beginning to work actively on television. And we thought it extraordinarily important that the CBC have the coordinating power in the developing of, of television, not some helter-skelter thing. And that, that wasn't as simple as a lot of people think. There are quite a few forces, influences, uh, among the public, of course, but among members of parliament and right in the cabinet, who said, you know, television's such an expensive thing, let the commercial people do it, don't get the CBC into this thing, they might come in later, but let the, let the commercial people uh, take the chances. And we had to, we, we fought very hard against that. And then, out of our resistance, I think, came the uh, Massey Commission, one of whose major tasks set up in 1950 was to look in the question of who should handle television. Vincent Massey had been a member of the Radio League and was extremely sympathetic to the CBC. 
His commission recommended that the CBC should develop television, and the government agreed. The CBC would get stations in the five major population centers, plus Ottawa. The rest of the country would be served by private stations, affiliated with the CBC. This policy permitted the system to grow very rapidly. There were 24 stations by 1954. But the fact that the CBC had to distribute its programs through commercial outlets created serious problems. The same problems that had existed in radio, but aggravated by the much higher costs of television. However, the CBC did still have a monopoly, and Alphonse we met, then the general manager, recalls that they were able to use the leverage this gave them with advertisers. We took advantage of that to really make the advertisers accept a kind of programming which was at a level which had not as much appeal to the masses as what has to be done or had to be done later. So we could tell, for example, the, the sponsors. We could say, all right, you want to bring uh, Bonanza in or some other American program? We say, that's sure, that's fine program. You're going to get a big audience. But on the other hand, if we approve of your sponsorship, then you'll have to buy a Canadian program on the French network. So we could, at the time, sort of force their hands a bit and reduce the impact of the commercial approach. The CBC could use its monopoly power to strong-arm advertisers and affiliates. But the fact remained that Canadians wanted American programs. CBC television, says Saturday Night Editor Bob Fulford, could not escape invidious comparisons with American television. In the 1950s, the audience looked at this, and at this product of CBC television, and largely rejected it. Now, I think a lot of people watched it, but they definitely liked it less than American programs. Definitely. No question about it. So the strong belief that American programs good, CBC programs not good, that became the ruling ethos of television watching and television discussion in Canada. And CBC was always under terrific pressure from outside by people who wanted private stations and uh, by Tories uh, who didn't like the idea of the CBC at all. All those things couple this with the fact that in many parts of Canada there was only one station. And that was the CBC station. So on this on the CBC, you would get some wonderful American programs and some wonderful, I say, Canadian programs. But if you didn't like the Canadian programs, then you saw that, then you perceived that they were being rammed down your throat. Uh, I could be watching, why didn't they show me another American program? I just saw Westinghouse Theatre from the States, and now they're putting on this Canadian program. And why, why aren't they showing me another American program? I liked, I liked the American program better, so I should have more of them. And... Um, so an anti-CBC feeling grew up, became very, very strong, and led to tremendous defensiveness. By 1958, the CBC had good reason to feel defensive. It wasn't just that sections of the audience preferred American programs. There was the continuing clamor of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters to have the CBC's regulatory powers removed. There were the powerful business interests who wanted to break the CBC's television monopoly and established second stations. And there was the resentment towards the CBC 
which had built up in the Conservative Party through 22 long years in opposition. So when the Conservatives were elected in 1957 and returned by a landslide in 1958, the writing was on the wall. After a government has been the opposition for 22 years like the Conservatives had been, they were convinced that everybody in the CBC were liberal activists, that we had uh, behind the scenes been supporting the liberal government. So when they came in, they had all kinds of ideas about the possibility of the CBC giving them a little support. Well, they were wrong. We had not been biased in favor of any particular political party. We were very proud of our independence, and I mean independence. And when they came in, we had to tell them that they were mistaken. And so there was a lot of, at my level, a lot of difficulties before we could really convince them that the CBC doesn't play sides. Uh, they finally realized that this was true, but while they were learning, the learning process was a bit difficult for us. Alphonse we met by this time had become the president of the CBC, a new position created by the new Broadcasting Act. The Act fulfilled the Conservatives' long-standing promise to strip the CBC of its regulatory powers. These powers were now vested in a new tribunal called the Board of Broadcast Governors. The BBG, as it was called, set about hearing applications for second television licenses. John Bassett got the Toronto license. Former CBC Vice President Ernie Bushnell was the successful applicant in Ottawa. All the new licensees made glowing promises, on which they subsequently reneged, a pattern which has held with virtually every private television station license since. The new regulatory board was theoretically responsible for the CBC and the private broadcasters. But the CBC had its own board, and received its money and its mandate directly from Parliament. So it was not disposed to be bossed around by this inexperienced newcomer. The private stations, on the other hand, were the board's direct creations. And in practice, it tended to become protector and preceptor to them alone. The Board of Broadcast Governors was composed of three full-time members and nine part-time members. Among the part-time members were Guy Houdon, the Dean of Law from Laval, and Eugene Forcy, then Research Director for the Canadian Labour Congress. Dr. Forcy soon noted the growing closeness between the Board and those it regulated. I think there came to be a, a good deal too much palliness between the uh, private broadcasters and, the, and some members of the Board. Uh, this irked uh, Dr. Udon and myself particularly. Uh, on one occasion, we had a particular broadcaster before us, not in a public hearing, and um, everybody was addressing him by his first name. Everybody except Dr. Udon and myself, at all events. And Dr. Udon said in his most pointed manner, Mr. So-and-so, if I may be permitted so to address you. And I know we, had, we were both getting increasingly uneasy about what seemed to us the palliness which existed uh, between uh, some members of the board and the people who came before us. A, a regulatory board is set up to regulate. 
And I think that should be made abundantly clear to people who are appointed to it. They are expected to stay at arm's length from the people they're regulating. The creation of the Board of Broadcast Governors introduced ambiguities into the broadcasting system, which still exists today. On top of its own board, the CBC now had an additional board between itself and the government. Before, when the CBC had wanted to extend its service, it had asked the government. Now it had to ask the BBG, and sometimes to fight, which it did for a license to establish a station in Quebec City in 1962. We had one place where we had a station and studios, Montreal. We had five places for English-speaking Canada, Halifax, Vancouver, Winnipeg, and so on. I had to appear before the BBG maybe on three long days as a witness presenting the case for the need of the National Service to have a station in the capital of Quebec, of the province of Quebec. And our application was being opposed by a small local private station with good connections. And it was crazy. There was the CBC saying, we need a station here because we must have more French originations and not all from Montreal. There is talent here to develop and so on. While somebody else was saying, boy, if you let me come here and uh, you know, I'll make so much money or whatever it is. And we barely got it. Two of the governors had to resign. The thing that I resigned over was the question of a French television license for the CBC in Quebec City. Eugene Forcy. This came before us over and over and over and over again. I can't remember now how often. And we were, uh, we were uh, given to understand that there were all sorts of complications about general principles of broadcasting which had to be worked out and uh, there might be this and that and the other development in the future and we couldn't really say. And, and finally, Guillaume and I lost all patience. And we didn't think that the reasons given for, for delay were valid and we were tired of being told next time there'll be a decision, next time there'll be a decision, next time there'll be a decision. But we could get nowhere. Our colleagues simply did not agree with us. And we thought that uh, we, we thought the time had come for a decision. We thought the decision ought to go to the CBC. So we, we got out. The Board of Broadcast Governors was only one of the crosses the CBC had to bear in the 60s. There was also the new CTV network, which had become precisely what people like Davidson Dutton had warned that it would, a sort of quasi-American network in Canada. This faced the CBC with the powerful temptation to keep pace by becoming more American itself. And the CBC was divided internally. The senior management in Ottawa were estranged from their program staffs in both Montreal and Toronto. In the early 60s, the struggles were mainly over questions of taste or aesthetic daring. Should the CBC present plays by writers like Edward Albee or Jean Ennui? But by the mid-60s, it had come to open warfare, over the contentious television series This Hour Has Seven Days. When Ottawa refused to renew the contracts of the program's much-loved hosts, Patrick Watson and Laurier Lapierre, 
the producers of the show decided to take their case directly to the people. Management survived the resulting showdown, but its reputation suffered. Secretary of State Judy LaMarche epitomized this popular impression when she made her infamous remark that the CBC had rotten management. The CBC also spent the 60s being poked and prodded by various official inquiries. In 1961, Graham Spry estimated that since the beginning of the CBC, fully one-third of the time of its senior management had been taken up with royal commissions, parliamentary committees, and the like. After 1961, it got even worse. And then, finally, in 1967, the government decided on a new broadcasting act and a new regulatory agency, the CRTC. Herschel Hardin is the author of a rather caustic history of the CRTC, called Closed Circuits. The CRTC came from uh, great disappointment in the performance of the Board of Broadcast Governors, the agency which preceded it, which uh, was regarded by all, in all the right circles in, in Ottawa and elsewhere in the country as having done a terrible job, having allowed things to get out of hand and not really having stood up for Canadian objectives. Also of being if not incompetent, at least not well enough briefed without enough of an information base, without enough expertise to deal with the very sharp and manipulative private broadcasters. Uh, the CRTC grew out of this, grew out of this dissatisfaction with the BBG and arising nationalism, uh, with Judy LaMarche's who was the minister at the time, Judy LaMarche's unhappiness with the administration of the CBC and of the way things were going, looking for a stronger hand that could, in effect, comment on the CBC and control the CBC and make it do it, what it, what it was supposed to be doing from a distance. She brought in uh, Pierre Junot, who had been with the film board. Uh, Harry Boyle was put on the CRTC. And these were two people, uh, quite a cut above the BBG personalities or so it was seen, and they came in on, in, a, in a spirit of great excitement and, and great hopes for a reform of uh, Canadian television. Well, what was the first take of the Eastern media particularly on the CRTC and on its chairman and vice chairman? Well, the, the first take, of course, was of a, uh, a new broom, a much more alert uh, independent of the industry, uh, willing to willing and prepared to make the private sector uh, do whatever it could do, as well as uh, shaping up the CBC. The real image of uh, of Junot and Boyle was created by the Canadian content hearings in 1970, uh, which turned into a rather vitriolic attack on the commission by members of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, the private broadcasters' lobby. Very vicious, very personal, very ill-informed, uh, almost to the point of comedy. And uh, against this foil, the image and prestige of Junot and, and Boyle skyrocketed. And they held their ground in terms of the cut and thrust and parry of, of the debate at these Canadian content hearings, which were intensively reported, and in effect be, became uh, nationalist heroes. It was as a nationalist hero that Pierre Junot rode out to do battle with the CBC in 1974. The occasion was a license renewal hearing, 
and it became rather acrimonious when the CBC decided to push back. Critics of the CBC had come, at CRTC expense, from all over the country, and they said, in essence, that the CBC had become too commercial and too American, that it had lost its central place in the intellectual and artistic life of Canada. The CRTC's prescription was for the CBC to get out of advertising. The corporation had already decided to drop advertising on radio. The CRTC now ordered a progressive reduction in the number of television commercials. CBC President Laurent Picard fought back and in the end successfully defied the CRTC's edict. Basically, the question at the, CB, at the CRTC hearing of 1974 was a question of the freedom of the CBC. Uh, the Broadcasting Act was not giving to the CRTC any real power over the CBC. The fact of the matter is that the CBC report to Parliament. It's much tougher to have a fight with, uh, and sometimes not as elegant, to have a fight with the Parliamentary Committee, of which I had few of them. It's much more uncomfortable than to work with the CRTC. But the fact of the matter is, is that the CBC has always reported to the Parliament, not even to a minister, to Parliament. And the, the 1974 fight, if you, uh, if you want to call it like that, or, or hearing, if you are more polite, uh, was about that. Ranged against Picard at the 74 hearing were what he called the intellectual angels of English Canada. He was particularly wroth with Bob Fulford of Saturday Night Magazine and the CRTC's vice chairman, Harry Boyle. Picard felt that they were simply unwilling to face reality, and the reality was that the CBC simply couldn't afford to drop commercials. The real cost, in terms of the utilization of money for program, of taking out the commercial from the CBC, is in the range of half a billion dollars. It, it will be an incredible mismanagement of money. The president of the CRTC at the time said, if, if you had to start all over again, would you be commercial? Well, no, no. If God gives promise me everything, I said something like that, no. But the fact is that you have to face reality. And it's unbelievable that after 10 years, there are so many people who have not understood that yet. And you have to remember that I'm the one who cut the commercial on radio. Because it, it was, there was a lot of noise in commercial, if you understand the word noise in terms of physics, you know, a lot of, of thing with the commercial, uh, bad taste and all of that, with income which was relatively small and a des destructive capacity which was very high. And I canceled the commercial on television, on, on radio. But now when you move to television, it's because you don't understand what television is that you try to do the same thing. It's a totally different structure and cost structure and all of that. But Angel, don't worry about costs. You refused to do what the CRTC asked. Clearly. Um, you've said you didn't even read the report. Well, I'm you joking, out, but it's partly Well, partly all right, you've said, metaphorically. <laughs> well, we have to write it. legend at How, some point. What were, what were the subsequent <laughs> politics of your defiance of the CRTC? Nothing. You never got a call from anyone in the government about oh, this? Oh, uh, I understand that the government, the cabinet, or the uh, governor in council is the arbitrator between the two, which I like very much. As I see, the independence of the CBC is the first key point. Uh, we had a call, uh, if I remember well, six or seven months after. We had a first meeting to discuss that, and I, I didn't hear about it uh, anymore after that. 
1974 hearing made it plain that as far as the CBC was concerned, the CRTC was a paper tiger. The real power was with the government, and because the government didn't want to pay for a non-commercial CBC, it had no choice but to back Laurent Picard. The whole affair was laced with bitter ironies. First there was the CBC, which should speak for the public financing of television, instead being reduced to defending its own commercialism. And then there was the CRTC, attacking the CBC for failing to live up to the lofty aims of the Broadcasting Act, while itself presiding over a major Americanization of the broadcasting system. The CRTC was set up to administer the 1968 Broadcasting Act, and the Act was quite clear that the programming carried on Canadian systems should be predominantly Canadian. But almost immediately, the Commission was confronted with a dilemma. American network signals were being distributed by cable in southern Canadian cities. Should the Commission allow these signals to be transmitted by microwave to cable systems in cities distant from the border? The CRTC said no. Off-air reception of American networks along the border couldn't be helped, but to actually build Canadian facilities to transmit American networks throughout Canada, that, said the Commission, would represent the most serious threat to Canadian broadcasting since 1932. Four months later, under intense popular and political pressure, the CRTC relented and said yes. They eventually had to capitulate. The, the inequity of this and the political pressure of it eventually bowled them over. What they failed to do was to say, we'll do this, but we'll only do this if, through the extension of the system, responsibility is also placed on cable operators by legislation to contribute financially to Canadian programming as the quid pro quo. That would have allowed them to get out of the argument that there were censors trying to stop programming at the border. They could have made the argument that we're all in favor of American programming, British programming, you name it, but also Canadian programming. And if you want to exercise the liberty of getting all the American programming that there is, you also have to make a very heavy contribution to programming from your own country. Well, they didn't do that. They didn't say to the government, or announce publicly, which would be talking to the government, that uh, you take the political heat until you're willing to take responsibility for legislation of this sort. And until you do, we're not going to move. And let your backbenchers from upcountry suffer, and let them raise their voices. It's your policy to make, uh, not our responsibility. And many, many years later, Pierre Junot, who was then president of the CBC, at a, uh, at a public hearing, did allow that he had made a mistake on that point, that he had not tied the two together. The CRTC was in a box. Its instructions were to safeguard the Canadianness of Canadian broadcasting. But the only way to get anything more than token Canadian broadcasting was through public financing. And the CRTC had no power to create new public television. So it licensed new private television instead, starting in 1972 with the Global Network. Herschel Hardin believes it was an act of frustration. And one of their frustrations was that they couldn't get CTV to do what it was supposed to be doing, and the CBC wasn't altogether an angel either when it came to Canadian content. Okay, what they should have done was said, this is hopeless, 
Uh, what we need to do is to have more public financing of television because structurally it's the only thing that's appropriate. And if if you, the government, are not willing to do it, we're going to resign because why get caught up and waste our energy and our vision in a useless exercise? This is a diversion from where we really should be going. Well, they didn't think that way. They tried working within what they already had on hand. And what they already had on hand was not the ability to create new public television or strengthen the CBC, which would require legislation, but the ability to license a new operator. And so they were vulnerable psychologically and in their own self-esteem to a pitch that said, look, we're going to offer you a solution. We're going to be better than those other guys. And this will give you a lever to use against CTV. So although there was a lot of skepticism, and I, I would think that people like Harry Boyle, for example, were were uh, were skeptical about it, they were willing to give uh, Global a chance. Well, taking a flyer on somebody who makes promises is not necessarily a bad thing. If you also ensure that if those promises aren't fulfilled, then uh, the license goes out the window. You don't retain a structure which hasn't done what, what, what it was supposed to do. You say, we gave you the chance, it didn't work, uh, goodbye to your license, we're going to set up something else of a different kind and try that one. And that's where the mistakes have been made all the way, uh, all the way along the line. Licenses have been created to do one thing, and they've been left around when they haven't done what they were supposed to do. Global promised the CRTC the sky. Canadian programs from independent Canadian producers were the big selling point. Three months later, the new network was facing bankruptcy. But instead of letting Global go under, the CRTC permitted its sale to new owners, who rapidly turned it into another facsimile American network. In theory, the CRTC is responsible for the performance of broadcasters. But in practice, it seems, it is responsible for their economic welfare. Since 1968, when the CRTC was created, the Canadian broadcasting system has been thoroughly Americanized. The former CRTC commissioners I've talked to say it was inevitable. Entrepreneurs wanted licenses. Audiences wanted American programs. Who was the CRTC to stand in their way? One quoted the famous story of the French socialist Jean Jaurès. Jaurès, the story goes, was standing in a Paris street when a crowd ran by. I must follow them, he remarked to his companion. I'm their leader. Inevitable or not, the change in the broadcasting system has had profound consequences for the CBC. It has shaped the tastes and expectations of audiences, and it has determined the conditions under which the CBC has had to compete for these audiences. This has left the CBC carrying the entire burden of public purpose in an environment more and more inimical to that purpose. So CBC television has adapted to its environment. It's become more mainstream. Hugh Gauntlet, the head of television arts, music, and science, thinks that in the process, it's given up some of its distinctiveness. My sense is that most of one's younger colleagues see uh, the CBC as a place that's got more money to do Canadian programs and uh, more independence in, in program making, but that it is not essentially different in kind from the private sector. And indeed, if you compare the CBC's television mix today with its television mix in the early 60s, 
um, there are grounds for feeling that way. Um, the spectrum is much narrower than it was then at both ends. Uh, we've lost uh, a degree of uh, popular programming, essentially country music. Don Messer symbolizes that at one end. And we have considerably reduced the volume of uh, uh, cultural programming and uh, intensely serious uh, public affairs programming, the Kuchichin Conference, at the other end. This narrowing of range, according to Hugh Gauntlet, has two causes, costs and competition. And as both have increased, CBC television has been forced to shrink its margins. Instead of shrinking the whole spectrum in proportion, as our ability to produce has contracted, we have for at least a decade, influenced by modern management methods, made rigorous lists of priorities and objectives, and said that uh, news and information is first and drama is second, and latterly that everything else is, practically speaking, nowhere. So that's on the economic front. Now the, the, the competition for audience, the second big factor, has obviously got tougher and tougher and tougher as more channels are added and as, uh, on the whole, all our competitors have gradually become uh, more effective so that uh, Global and the third stations in the West are as effective uh, programmers as CTV itself, um, it gets tougher and tougher to hang on to a share of audience. That produces an ever more critical review of the kind of programming which, by definition, is going to only draw a minority of viewers. And when you look at the cost per thousand of that in this kind of economic climate, I don't blame program directors for saying that they want less of it right. because they absolutely have to spend the money mm. on the primary goal of Canadianizing the popular entertainment. Canadianizing the popular entertainment is certainly one of the things that the CBC should be doing. So is maintaining our existing strengths in news and information. But the elimination of both the highbrow and the lowbrow, the innovative and the eccentric, is a very costly loss for public broadcasting. What CBC television needs to solve this problem is simply enough said. It needs more money and it needs more channels. During the presidency of Al Johnson from 1975 to 1982, it almost had both. The story of how, in the end, it got neither is a virtual parable of the CBC and of Canada. Johnson became president in 1975 and quickly decided that the theme of his presidency must be the Canadianization of television. He and his staff produced a document called Touchstone for the CBC. One of the things it proposed was a second television network for the CBC. Radio already had two networks and used them effectively to serve both mass and minority audiences. Now, said Johnson, television must do the same. Only with a second network could CBC television address its basic dilemma. Television is hamstrung because in the first place we are partly commercial and we are partly public, tax-supported. And you have, you have mixed messages going to the producers of television. At one moment you're telling them produce a program that will garner large large sums of money to enable us to produce Canadian programs and then the next minute you're telling them but we want you to do a, a, a thoughtful reflection on this subject or that subject. They're mixed messages 
Secondly, uh, the problem is that you uh, cannot serve the regional and the national mandates of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation on a single network. You haven't got the network time, or the, the air time. And uh, the third thing is that you can't, and probably most important of all, is that you can't serve different audience tastes. There is a wide body of, of, of CBC supporters in this country who really think that television, CBC television, should be like CBC stereo, radio. Now, it's a point of view which I have a good deal of sympathy for, given my own tastes, but the truth of the matter is that with a single network, you're trying to serve everybody. And I used to say to some of my uh, artistic friends that the difficulty is that there are more hockey fans than they are, there are opera fans, and, and you can't ask the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, somehow or other, to abandon uh, its popular programming in favor of, uh, I'll repeat the metaphor, in favor of opera. When you have two services, you then are in a position to mold them so as to serve particular tastes in each of the two services. And uh, that doesn't mean that you have two, two, two different audiences. You have crossovers in audience, but you have the potential for a much richer service. What was needed to realize this vision was money, and that depended on the government. At first, the situation looked hopeful, thanks to some spade work that had been done by Laurent Picard, Johnson's predecessor. Well, when I first came to the CBC in 1975, uh, there was in the course of development, and I was able to see through, uh, a, an arrangement uh, under which the government guaranteed funding for five years. There was a decision of cabinet that the CBC would receive an annual increase of 5% in, in real dollars. In, in real dollars. And that meant a very substantial, not only a commitment to a long-term plan, but it meant a, very, a, a, a quite substantial increase each year. That continued, that arrangement continued, uh, until uh, 1978, uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau announced a very substantial $70 billion cut. $70. Don't <laughs> <Seven>, you wish. <laughs> $70 million cut in the in the CBC's budget. Now, that uh, I'm not about to uh, suggest what relationship uh, existed between that decision on the one hand and on the other hand, the fact that the CBC was under very heavy pressure in 1976-77 because of the allegations about separatism in the CBC French service. But it still remains that uh, the CBC budget was cut and the CBC never again, during my term of office, received the 5% real increase that had been committed by the government in 1975. After the election of the Parti Québécois, the federal cabinet and the Quebec caucus of the Liberal Party declared open season on the media. André Ouellette told the House of Commons that Radio Canada was infested with separatists. His cabinet colleague, Mitchell Sharp, echoed his charges. And may I ask, what is the CBC? owned and paid for by the Canadian taxpayers doing to help to break down the barriers surrounding the two solitudes and to promote harmony and understanding. My observation is bloody little. With hysteria in Ottawa increasing over separatism in the CBC, the government asked the CRTC to look into it. CRTC Chairman Harry Boyle convened an inquiry which exonerated the journalists of Radio Canada and gradually the shouting died down. But for the CBC, 
the damage had already been done. If the government was in a mood to blame the messenger, Radio Canada could hardly win covering the referendum, no matter how even-handed it was. And Al Johnson lacked the political influence to regain the support of Cabinet. So, when his CBC2 proposal finally went to the CRTC in 1981, it went without any commitment by the government to pay for it. John Meisel was then chairman of the CRTC. My reaction was one of uh, anguish and pain, essentially, because I, the idea of a CBC2, I thought, was a wonderful idea. I, you know, I couldn't have uh, uh, found a more appealing to me, and not just to me personally, but also to me as, a, as a, at that point as a regulator of, of broadcasting in Canada in keeping with the tenets of the broadcasting. I thought it was a terrific idea. But there were some very, very serious problems with it. Um, primarily, of course, uh, the fact that there was no money for it. Uh, the money that was uh, to be allocated, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was estimated to be something like 35 million a year, the, um, uh, had to be taken from something else. And I found it very difficult to accept the idea that uh, somebody like, say, myself, who is a, an avid radio listener, would find my radio service impoverished by money being diverted from it to enable cable subscribers somewhere, which really means the better off people in, in the more urban areas of the country, to get yet an additional service so the people who get their broadcasting free would be in a sense, subsidizing the people in the large cities who already have a surfeit of programming. And I thought that since the government was not prepared to put additional funds into the program and the, into the uh, funds had to be taken away from existing services, I thought that it just wasn't uh, appropriate that this be done, that this was uh, inimical to my mind to the kind of uh, society in which we live and would undermine the quality of the CBC in places where it has a unique role, namely areas where there, there's not, not much else. The CRTC refused to grant us a license. Uh, here was the regulatory agency which had been endowed by Parliament with the responsibility for realizing a substantially Canadian broadcasting system saying no to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation when it said, let's have a second service that is substantial, that is almost entirely Canadian. I found that mind-boggling. Uh, I understood that the CRTC was under pressure. I believe it was John Meisel's view that, that the money question was critical, that if there wasn't money from the government for CBC2, then you would end up robbing CBC1 to pay for CBC2. I suppose the other way it could be put is that if CBC2 had been licensed, the government would have to have, have had to face up to the question as to whether it was going to veto the CRTC decision by refusing to give the CBC the money. That's how I looked on it. Uh, that... the, chairman, the chairman of the CRTC had a choice. He made the wrong choice. The face-off between John Meisel and Al Johnson was in many ways a replay of Pierre Junot versus Laurent Picard in 1974. Once again, the real issue was the underlying structure of the system, and the real power was in the hands of the government. Since 1958, when the CBC lost its television monopoly and its regulatory powers, there has been a steady growth of private television, 
there has been no comparable growth of public television on a national scale, although there have been exciting provincial initiatives like TV Ontario. For nearly 30 years, governments have sheltered behind the skirts of their regulatory agencies, first the BBG, then the CRTC. A policy decision on public broadcasting is overdue. The Kaplan Sauvageau Task Force has been shrewd enough to give the government a package of proposals it can afford. And after all, it was a conservative government which started public broadcasting in the middle of the Depression. Meanwhile, the CBC carries on, and according to Al Johnson, even makes progress. The first cartoon that was drawn of me when I be, after I became president of the CBC was after my first speech, and it showed, portrayed me, my Canadianization speech, it portrayed me in, in television studios with all the paraphernalia of television there, and me standing in the middle of the studio floor with a briefcase, looking very bureaucratic, as I'm sure I did. And I'm saying, what's talent and quality got to do with it? It's Canadian. This was a McPherson cartoon. I don't believe that cartoon would be drawn today. And that's tonight's ideas. And the final program in our series on public broadcasting in Canada. The series has been written and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations, Derek Stubbs. Production assistants, Gail Brownell. Archives research, Ken Pewley. Producer, Bernie Lucht. You can get a printed transcript of this five-part series. The whole thing costs $5. Just send a check or money order to CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. It'll take six to eight weeks for the transcript to arrive. I'm Lister Sinclair, and you won't be hearing us tomorrow night. Ideas is preempted to make way for the Actra Radio Awards, which will be broadcast live from the Jane Mallet Theatre in Toronto. But we'll be back Wednesday with a program called Common Culture. Join me then. Good night.